Hi, I'm Charlie Spencer and welcome to the Cardiology Nurse Forum podcast. My name's Alec Taylor. Hello. And I'm Alethea Bautista. Great. Alethea, why don't you tell us what the forum is? So Cardiology okay. Nurse Forum is a safe haven for those cardiology nurses or other allied health professionals who has interest in cardiology to have a safe discussion with us and with the rest of the team regarding issues in cardiology. And Al, what do you think the podcast adds? The podcast is is a way of sort of answering those questions uh, posed on the Facebook group that would probably be best answered in a Teams format. And each time we've tried to identify a specific aspect. And this one was about heart failure. Um, so it's a nice way of getting people together. Thanks. So, yeah, this podcast was a discussion about heart failure medications, recognising that there was the SGLT2 inhibitors and increased utilisation of Entresto. It made the landscape for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction medications a little bit more complicated. So we thought we'd have a little review of the evidence for some of the drugs and a general chat about how you put that into practice. And it was really great, I thought, to hear from heart failure nurses, Fliss and Sarah from Worcester, and really hear how they tackle some of those challenges that come up in your daily practice, things like hyperkalemia and poor renal function. What were your guys taking on it? So I really enjoyed it because it wasn't just us three droning on. It was people who have done it day in, day out especially when Sarah was talking about like the cardio-renal MDT. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I've not heard of anybody doing that before, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, when you're worrying about some of these drugs in poor renal function, or particularly the hyperkalemia and their, their familiarity with some of these new potassium blockers. Olivia, what did you make of it? So, yeah, the um, juggling of the medications is pretty challenging. It's an absolute minefield. And I like the point that Sarah pointed out with regards to bridging them to the washout period when they're already in ACE. I think that is absolutely fabulous. So yes, it's a very interesting and an excellent podcast. I agree. One quick correction is that Fliss refers to the Emperor Preserve trial when she's, she means the Emperor Reduced trial, because obviously there has since been the Pre- Preserve trial, which was the sister trial, which um, had had some benefit in HEFPEF, but that's not really discussed in this meeting. And as always, we would say that the opinions and views expressed by those in the podcast are their own and do not reflect any organisations that they work for or may be affiliated with. So without further ado, let's listen to the meeting. So thanks everyone for joining. And just to frame it, we were going to have a couple of little presentations about some of the meds, assuming that everyone's already fairly au fait with the data for ACE inhibitors, ARBs and beta blockers as uh, they've been around for a while and um, we know they work and we're fairly familiar with initiating and up titrating them. Uh, but it's really when we put in some of the newer agents and how we do that. So my colleague now Natalie Barber is going to give us a little refresher on some of the data for Entresto. Then Fliss, are you okay to do MRAs? Is that still the plan? Uh, Sarah's going to talk a bit about MRAs and I'm going to talk a bit about the ESC guidelines. Oh, fantastic, because I hadn't got round to preparing anything for that. So that's superb. And then I've just got a little bit about uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And then we'll just have a general chat about, you know, what we think the sort of opportunities are or challenges are for getting these meds to our patients and how we might approach it in real practice, because I think it has made the landscape for heart failure nurses and for all of us in cardiology a bit more complicated potentially than it may have been before. So uh, Nat, are you logged in and and kick us off with our interest day? So as Charlie said, I work with him in acute cardiology. Um, But before that, I was working as a heart failure nurse in South Warwickshire. 
I was in role when we introduced Entresto and it came into part of the guidelines. So for those that don't know, Entresto is a unique drug, really. It's a combination drug um, and it's a class called an ARNI, which is an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. So what we know about uh, Entresto is it, ca- it contains valsartan, which is a angiotensin receptor blocker that's been around for years, used for years for heart failure and high blood pressure. But it's also combined with a drug called sacrobutril, which is a neurohormone. And what that does is it's a neprilysin inhibitor, which prevents the breakdown of natriuretic peptides. So Everything that the heart does in heart failure and everything that the brain does to respond in heart failure and the kidneys do to respond to heart failure is wrong, other than these little peptides, which are very, very helpful. And they help to prevent the reabsorption of sodium and fluid back into the body. They increase glomerular filtration rate and actually they prevent the secretion of renin. So they also work on the RAS system as well. So it's like an extra whammy on the RAS system. And initially, when they first designed it, uh, they looked at putting a neprilysin inhibitor in by itself. But actually, that caused sort of overactivation of the RAS system and did the opposite of, of what it was intended to do. Um, they tried combining it with an ACE inhibitor, but actually that caused more angioedema episodes. So then they've ended up combining it with an ARB. So the study, the paradigm study, was really a very big multinational study. Uh, Nearly 9,000 people recruited into it. Uh, They initially started off recruiting people with an ejection fraction of less than 40 percent. And then they reduced that sometime during the study to less than 35 percent. And the interesting thing about this was they actually stopped the study early because of its overwhelming benefits. And that's really unusual for drug trials other than normally cancer drug trials. So this drug very quickly came out onto the market and it was speed tracked through uh, NICE guidelines. But it didn't quite get the position in the pathway that I think they were hoping for. Novartis, who makes Entresto, was hoping that it was going to be a first line drug. And actually, it came into the guidelines for fully titrated patients who are still symptomatic. And when you look at the new ESC guidelines, actually, it still kind of sits in that place. But there is some, um, they do sort of bow to the fact that actually, you know, you can start Entresto as a, a first line. So you don't need to give people ACE inhibitors and up titrate those and then see if people are symptomatic. And I think the way that we use Entresto is probably going to change over the next few years, particularly with the new CAME guidelines that are coming in. So what's so great about it? Well, I suppose from a heart failure point of view, looking after patients that take Entresto, because they feel so much better, that's the biggest bonus. So their quality of life improves energy levels seem to improve, NYHA class goes down, they're able to enjoy life more. So it's just a a wonderful drug from that point of view. But it's certainly the evidence is there to say that it improves survival rates, it reduces the risk of hospitalisation, and it reduces the symptoms. And potentially, because there's this prevention of reabsorption of sodium, 
and fluid into the system, there's a potential to be able to down titrate people's diuretics. So it's quite easy to prescribe. There's three doses. It would be easier to prescribe if we were allowed to prescribe it as the combination dose of 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams. But we actually have to prescribe it as the individual components of the drug. So the first dose of 24 stroke 26 milligrams is 26 milligrams of valsartan and 24 milligrams of the supercutural. That's impossible to say. And it's a twice daily dose. So I always found that the uh, doses of the valsartan are really bizarre and don't match what we would give if we were using valsartan as a heart failure drug. But that's because of the bioavailability is far greater. So apparently 26 milligrams of valsartan is the equivalent of 40 milligrams of a normal valsartan tablet. And a 103, the top dose of valsartan in an Entresto tablet, is the equivalent of 160 milligrams. So that just sort of explains why there's that, that weird dose. So the lowest dose is really reserved for people that have quite a low blood pressure. So the definition of a low blood pressure for the purpose of a low dose Entresto is between 100 and 110 systolic. But it's also reserved for people with a lower EGFR. So if they've got some renal impairments, generally going in with Entresto for an EGFR less than 30 would probably take some specialist decision making and very careful monitoring. So those patients, you would start on the lower group. And particularly if you've got people that are a little bit symptomatic and you're going with an approach of a little bit of everything then actually the lowest dose is probably quite sensible to start on and we can titrate those doses every two weeks if we want to but probably people with some renal impairment blood pressure a little bit on the lower side elderly patients you could perhaps give them a full month on that dose before then up titrating them anybody who's already on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB you can automatically switch them on to the middle dose. But what we have to remember is we need the washout of the ACE inhibitor because there is that risk of angioedema. So the guidelines from, the, from Novartis is that you provide a 36-hour washout of the ACE inhibitor. And generally what we say to people is they just stop it for two days beforehand and then switch on to the dose of Entresto. And then again, we can increase up onto the highest dose. I think with all of these drugs, if you are up titrating patients with heart failure, you need to have the capacity to see them. So you've got to be able to see people quite frequently. You have to have plans to monitor renal function. So you need to monitor the renal function. They recommend two weeks after changing the dose, but you can do it normally a sort of a week before. Oh, sorry, the week after. So I think what's really useful is being able to troubleshoot when you have problems and knowing what to do. And you will run into problems giving patients Entresto, probably because of the combination of other drugs that they're taking. And people, as we know, with heart failure, reduced ejection fractions, struggle to maintain a good blood pressure. So hypotension is a common problem. And so is cardiorenal syndrome because they're underperfusing their kidneys. I've always found that on the ESC guidelines um, in the supplementary section, there's really good guidelines of what to do with. So for their troubleshooting, 
And I think what's really lacking with the BNF and some of the literature that's produced for Entresto is guidance for renal function and deterioration of renal function. And the, the guidelines actually from the ESC about worsening renal function, I think is a bit bizarre because they allow a reduction in EGFR up to 30 mils. So what I tend to do with Entresto is just follow the ACE guidelines for deterioration of renal function. And I have always used that and just found it quite a good way of of looking at the renal function. So in practice, always doing a baseline renal function. And then after introducing a drug such as, as an ACE, uh, Entresto, spiralactone, um, repeating the drug, uh, repeating the renal function and looking at the rise of the creatinine. Because we do know that when we give these drugs, we can expect some rise in urea and creatinine and potassium. That's quite a normal thing to happen. But it's when does it become a problem and when should we start down titrating? So I always allow up to a 50% increase of the creatinine. So if it if it starts at 80 and then you do your bloods and it's 90, well, that's less than a 50% increase and we can allow that to, to go on. But if it goes above the 50%, then I start thinking, okay, what can we do to prevent this from getting any worse? And actually, if the creatinine's going up and it's about 266, which is nine, which is the ESC recommendations for um, ACE inhibitors, that's when I start thinking, what what can I stop? Is there anything nephrotoxic in this person's drug catalogue that I can pull back on that's unnecessary? Is there anything that's going to improve the renal function if I stop it? I may have to think at that stage about coming down on a dose. So if the renal function doesn't improve, if there's nothing that I can do to pull out any drugs that are nephrotoxic, I might have to think about going for a slightly lower dose of the Entresto and just seeing if the renal function recovers. Then if there's patients where the creatinine increases by 100% of the baseline or it goes up to 310 then that's when I think about stopping it and giving them a break or quickly down titrating it and repeating the blood. So I find those guidelines quite useful and I've used those a lot as the heart fa- as a heart failure nurse to help direct the care for renal impairment. Um, and again, with potassium, it's always a little bit tricky because we're adding in um, other classes of drugs as well, like the MRAs that hold on to potassium. So hyperkalemia is quite a common problem. So I think, again, it's just about being careful, monitoring the renal function quite regularly and making sure that you've got a trend and, you know, allowing a slightly higher potassium up to 5.5 is reasonable. That's accepted standard. But just sort of being careful and then trying to decide which one you're going to pull back on. And it's quite easy when you've slowly introduced drugs because you know which one has had the biggest effect on the potassium. Um, But when you're adding in a little bit altogether, then actually that can be quite difficult. So hypotension, potentially patients are going to get more of problematic hypotension with Entresto over um, an ACE or an ARB. Although interestingly, the study data didn't show that. So um, 
in both the paradigm and the transition study, which is an acute heart failure study for Entresto and the pioneer study, actually it didn't cause worsening symptomatic hypotension compared to enalapril, which I thought was quite surprising. If patients have got low blood pressure and they're asymptomatic, they don't tend to do anything about it. If they are symptomatic with low blood pressure, then really start thinking about what else can we do to avoid taking out those key drugs that are going to improve the heart failure. So dropping out other antihypertensives that don't have the data to improve heart function, thinking about a reduction in diuretics, if we can allow that, looking at the vasodilators, so sometimes people on high dose of nitrates, but actually haven't had any problem with angina for a long time. And if you just cut down on that, might improve their blood pressure, and then they can tolerate these key drugs. I suppose when I look back on the patients that I've stopped Entresto on, a few of them have been hypotension that really just for some reason could tolerate an ACE and then put them on the smallest dose of Entresto and they end up with a blood pressure of 70 systolic and feel dreadful. And even revisiting it again on the same patients, thinking, okay, let's give it another go, has ended up with the same problem, which is quite frustrating. The other thing is actually, I've had quite a few people that have had diarrhea and haven't been able to tolerate Entresto because of that. So it's really upset their stomachs. And then they've just ended up going back onto an ACE inhibitor. I mean, really, we would try and keep people on Entresto. I think where the data is the most impressive with the Paradigm study is the MYHA class 2 patients who really, you know, are carrying on with life. And yes, they're getting some symptoms, but generally they're living quite a good quality of life. And the evidence for Entresto in this group of patients is actually better outcomes than in class three and class four. So I think we really owe it to people to try and put them on it and persevere with it. When it was first introduced, it was for chronic heart failure. But there's since been quite a lot of trials looking at acute heart failure and when we should introduce Entresto. Both the transition study and the pioneer study were similar inclusion criteria that they needed to be off of IV diuretics or no changes within the 24 hours. They had to have a systolic blood pressure over 110 and that couldn't have dipped within six hours. They needed to be off of intravenous inotropes and one of the studies, I think it was the Pioneer study, that wanted people off of vasodilators such as nitrates intravenously. So they really were looking at sort of quite stable patients. Some of them, they recruited within 24 hours of coming in. So they would obviously turn those patients around quite quickly. Some patients, they weren't starting on Entresto for about 10 days after they'd been in. So, you know, a fairly typical chronic decompensating heart failure that's quite difficult to turn around, maybe coming a bit late with some renal impairment, difficult to offload. But generally, in comparison to enalapril, actually there wasn't worsening symptomatic hypotension or worsening renal function. And I think I'm much more likely now to put people onto Entresto earlier. I'm sensing there's questions. Thank you very much, Nat. Some people say that the real the real comparison would be Valsart and Alone. Um, yeah. 
but then you know i guess ace ace is the standard of care and arbs are the kind of uh, backup drug aren't they um, yeah so a bit, bit tricky, they, they haven't haven't got so much robust data um backing up arbs although we know that they work um and they work on the ras system in a similar way but just in a different part of the ras system um so you know i think when you're comparing it you've got to look at previous trial data haven't you as well yeah grand thank you very much for that that, that was uh, that was great it was good uh, insight sarah are you okay to do mras next uh, yeah so i'm sarah i'm the heart yeah. failure nurse at well i'm the lead heart failure nurse at wolverhampton heart failure team um been a heart failure nurse since about 2004 um so i'm a bit of an old old girl at this yeah, so Fliss has asked me to talk about MRIs and how we use them in practice. Ever since I've been in the job, we've been using spironolactone, so I was quite surprised that, that I was asked to talk about them, but I'm more than happy to talk about them as much as I know anyway. So MRAs, um, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. I'm, I'm going to shorten it to MRA. <laughs> so as all other heart failure meds, I suppose with the, um, the exception of, of diuretics really, they're used to, to prolong life, reduce hospitalizations and improve um, exercise intolerance. They are disease modifying medications. And I think that's really important to keep in the back of your mind is that these are really important tablets. I mean, a lot of people uh, over the years have used them as just said that, oh, it's a potassium sparing diuretic. Um, but actually, no, they're much more than that. So so don't just think them as one of your arsenal of water tablets. Actually, you know, you really need to, to look into deeper into what their effect are. I suppose to really to understand an MRA, you, you really need to know what, what they're actually doing. What, what does aldosterone do? Very simply, it's a steroid hormone. It acts upon the distal tubules and the collecting ducts of the nephrons. So it causes conservation of sodium, secretion of, of potassium, increased water retention and increased blood pressure, which all are element of the, the RAS system that's been upgraded in the patient with heart failure. So it's looking at how can we get on top of um, the upgraded RAS system that's now going absolutely crazy. The receptive antagonists are looking to block the receptors to aldosterone. So go to spironolactone and aplenorone because they're the two MRAs that, that we're using here. Spironolactone has always been around for me as from being when I started to be a heart failure nurse. But going back to the RAS, RAS or RAILS trial, however you want to say it, going back to the late 90s, I think the findings were published in, in 99. Their recruitment selection was New York Heart Association class three patients and above, so class three to four. Um, ejection fraction of 35% or less. And interestingly, the creatinine cutoff was around 200 millimoles per litre. So, you know, patients with some renal impairment were, were included in there. Started off with the initial dose of 25 milligrams that was increased up to 50 milligrams uh, once daily. If the blood pressure and renal function um, tolerated it, that was about after a month. So that was really the, the RALS trial, which excellent outcomes um, from what I'm trying to remember again, and this is off the top of my head, I'm sure it was around 30% um, decrease in hospitalizations. 30% seems to be mentioned quite a lot in heart failure trials, I've noticed. So spironolactone has always really been part of, of the treatment that I've used for, for heart failure and certainly in patients with class three and above, um, NYHA class three and above symptoms. When it comes to looking at eplenorone, eplenorone in the, is a more selective MRA. The FISA study was the, um, the first study, which was really immediately post-MI with an ejection fraction of 40%. So it was 
mainly introduced in the acute phase while patients were in hospital post-MI, um, ejection fraction of 40% or less. Eplanarone was used at that point, which really wasn't the patients that I was seeing because I was seeing patients um, out in the community clinic. So that bit passed me by a bit, I'm going to have to admit, because I wasn't working on the ward at that point. Um, it was really when the emphasis MI, um, sorry, emphasis HF um, study was done, which was very similar to the, the, the RAL study in chronic heart failure. So patients came down to NYHA class 2 symptoms, it would look at those. Again, a dose of 25 milligrams of titrated to 50 milligrams once daily if the, the, the renal function and blood pressure tolerated it. So really, it, it's looking at, at those two MRAs, which ones are we going to use and where are we going to use them? I think looking at the side effect profile, they can increase potassium. So you do have to keep an eye on the renal function. And I think that the general agreed checking of the renal function is around about a week after starting it initially. Then every month for, for three months, we check it again if we do increase the dose as well following that. Then checking it a month for every three months and then on a six monthly basis to, to check what's going on with the renal function. Um, we wouldn't initiate it if the potassium is um, if the potassium's about 5.1, 5.2. I'll think about it because I'll think about what other drugs is the patient on that could potentially be lower the potassium. You know, I might be increasing up the loops at the same time if they're, they're particularly symptomatic. Um, but if potassium is above 5.5, 5.5, I wouldn't be starting an MRI on those patients. Um, you also have to think of patients' blood pressure. Um, Spironolactone, in, in particular, is really quite quite a, a potent hypotensive drug. In fact, our renal team do favour it as using it as an antihypotensive um, and get quite good re reports with it. Um, gynecomastia, certainly with spironolactone. Um, gynecomastia um, can occur... Um, it, sorry the MRA can interfere with, with testosterone um, produ production. So therefore, some people do start to get some tender breasts with the kind of gynecomastia, um, especially men. But however, um, a plenarone is a little bit more selective, so it doesn't act upon the, the testosterone so much. So you can get less of an incidence of gynecomastia with the plenarone, but it's not complete that you won't get it with the plenarone. You can obviously get a worsening of the renal function. We, we normally take it to around about 30% from baseline. So before starting an MRA, you do want your baseline bloods just to see where you're starting from and we will let let as as um natalie said you know we have to expect some renal impairment with practically all of the heart failure drugs that we're using I suppose beta blockers we can perhaps exclude those but um but if we're getting a, a worsening of renal function that's more than 30 percent from baseline then we really will be looking back at, at the the mra and see whether could we perhaps use a lower dose which I've said the starting dose is 25 milligrams, but you can get a 12 and a half milligram dose if, if push comes to shove. Um, you know, you could put a patient onto that as well. And the side effects that you can have, including some GI upsets as well, you have to be really quite careful because obviously if you've got a patient that's now get from, you know, um, prolific diarrhea from starting the spironolactone, really be careful what's going to happen to their, their uh, potassium. So, when you've got a patient that is on MRAs, it's trying to determine if you get that phone call, if you get that phone call from a patient saying, you know, I've now got a tummy upset, it's really, have they been on an MRA for, for several months or even years, and now they've got a stomach upset, 
um, or has that stomach upset caused because you've put them on an MRA? Um, we do do sick rules in, in my team. I, I presume that the other heart failure teams do that as well, that if you do have a patient ring up um, that's been on M an MRA for a while that's saying, you know, I've now got some GI upset, I'm not feeling too well, is that we'll actually stop the MRA for a couple of days, let them get over what, what bug they might have. And then restart, um, obviously trying to check the potassium as soon as possible. Also, which one do you go for? Do you go for the aplenarone or do you go for the, the spironolactone, especially in, in, in chronic heart failure? So in the environments that we're seeing patients. First of all, that there is a slight monetary difference between the two. Spironolactone is as cheap as chips. Aplenarone isn't as cheap as chips, but um, certainly the price has reduced quite significantly from when it was first, first came out. So I'd probably go with spironolactone in the first instance, unless I know that the patient hasn't tol tolerated spironolactone previously. In, in whatever function it's been used. I find that, that spironolactone is generally well tolerated. It is normally potassium that, that we get a little bit, bit concerned about with patients, but generally um, the majority of, of patients can tolerate spironolactone and or aplenarone really quite well. But if I have got a patient that's had problems with gynecomastia or a patient that hasn't tolerated a spironolactone previously, then I'll go for a plenarone. And certainly a patient that if I've started them on spironolactone and it doesn't suit them, then I'll try a plenarone. I'm always trying to keep an MRA in there. I do find it's one of those drugs that, that's stopped quite frequently. And the actual understanding that, you know, we really need to try and get an MRA in to support the patient as, as much as possible and try and go back to it and redress it if you can. An interesting thing that we're actually doing now is, is dealing with the renal team and using potassium binders. And so we've got more patients that are going on MRAs now that never we would never even, you know, think about putting them on an MRA. Some patients feel absolutely brilliant with spironolactone or with aplenarone really does improve their symptoms. They feel so much better with it in. There is obviously always a certain group of patients that, that don't tolerate it for, for a whole variety of reasons. You're also thinking about not just concentrating on one medication, it's getting the whole mixture of medications, maybe not at optimum doses, but actually at least if you're attacking the RAS system from every single side, then you're pro providing the best opportunity for that patient to at least have some disease-modifying medications rather than just concentrating on one and expending the blood pressure on just one medication when actually you should be looking at a mixture. <laughs> this isn't going well with this cough, so I'm so sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> Thank I'm you, Sarah. That was great. Because I'm coughing too much, so do excuse me. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, no, you definitely win the um, the uh, yeah <laughs> resilience awards for your COVID status. I think the the most dramatic we had on the previous one was when uh, Nat had a plumbing emergency and was fixing the kitchen sink in the middle of it. That was that was quite entertaining. Um, so I hope you haven't uh, ruined your, your voice too much wasn't. with that. Thank you for that. Yeah, that, no, that was really useful. And I think you answered a lot of my questions as it they came up as, um, um, uh, you know, in regards to when you'd use the different agents and, you know, some of the complications with them. And the reason you raised an important point, you know, they have been around for a really, really long time and there's good, good data for them. But I think it actually does vary quite a lot across services, how much they're used and how quickly and aggressively they're, they're put into a pathway. And I think now we've got newer drugs 
that are obviously more expensive there's always an enthusiasm for the latest drugs aren't there so um i think it's just important to to put in some of the you know well-evidenced adjuncts that maybe not everybody thinks of or maybe people are a bit more cautious of so um yeah that's why i thought it'd be useful and it certainly was for me because i i confess i'm not totally uh, up to date on the MRI data. Sorry, yeah, go on. So the, our heart failure clinical lead, um, he is very much into um, MRAs. He he will push that, you know, really early on in, in the patient's journey, really. Um, and I think that that's made us as, as a nursing group as well. You know, if our, if our clinician is telling us, you know, get them on that, get them on that as soon as you can, um, you know, we've upgraded our game on, on getting it on. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Make, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Who the lead of your overall services and um, um, yeah, so uh, you know. But that's uh, that's really um, good to hear and hear a bit about your service, which hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about. Unless anybody's got else has got any burning questions about Sarah's presentation on. I, I was just really pleased to hear that you're using the potassium binders because I, I think that's perhaps missing a trick and not using that quite as much as we should be I don't think it's something I've ever prescribed um, but that's it's nice to hear that that's what you're doing so that you are getting so many more people onto those drugs I think um, like we've set up a, a cardio renal MDT um, and the renal team are leading on the potassium binders but you know we're obviously presenting the patients that that you know, we had one particular patient that as soon as we got her anywhere near an MRA or anywhere near Intresto, bang, the potassium went up to six. Um, um, so getting the potassium binders in there, and you do have to be quite selective with your patients when it comes to potassium binders. Um, but but once you got the potassium binders in there, we've actually managed to get some heart failure medications in there now. So, um, so that might be something for one of the other meetings that you've got is, is talking about potassium binders and their role in, in management of heart failure uh, as in will help to manage heart failure okay so i hope that wasn't too coffee so thank you <laughs> no that was that was brilliant uh, i'll see that'll be a challenge for me with editing can i edit out every cough uh, um, <laughs> or do we keep them in there for style for realism <laughs> so <laughs> thank you grand Right, I'll do my little bit on SGLT2 inhibitors. So general cardiology, I do really. I've never been a uh, heart failure nurse specifically, but we have a quite an elderly cohort. So it's, it's a really big part of our day-to-day -day work, both in acute and in the general cardiology clinics we do. And we also do a two-week post-discharge heart failure clinic to try and um, help our community heart failure nurse colleagues it, to provide that little bridge because it's obviously a bit tricky to, to, to see people quickly when they're referred. So the SGLT2 inhibitor stands for sodium glucose co-transporter 2, uh, which is the target uh, of these agents. And um, as with everybody else, I'm not going to refer to the, the long version again. And these are originally diabetes drug. They're acting in the proximal tubule affecting the uh, reabsorption of glucose that happens and they're preventing some of that. So essentially diabetic patients with glucose that crosses the threshold, they will be weighing out some of their glucose. With osmosis, as we learn about with our diuretic, that's going to cause water to follow the glucose in much the same way it, it follows salt in the, in the way um, most of our other diuretics work. So um, it does have a diuretic effect, and that has been one 
proposed mechanism for how it helps in heart failure. But we obviously haven't found that other diuretics offer prognostic or long-term benefits, although we know they are necessary for patients that are, are fluid overload. There's a variety of effects. So there's effects on insulin resistance, obviously the glucose, um, but it can reduce weight as well, reduce albinuria, arterial syphilis, reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. So there's multiple effects that can be beneficial in the diabetic patient. And we don't really know why they're beneficial in the heart. Your modern diabetes drugs following a plethora of new expensive agents that of questionable benefit, it became essentially mandatory for cardiovascular outcomes to be included in diabetic trials to avoid the harm that was found in, in one or two agents retrospectively. So really, they're looking to demonstrate no harm, not really expecting to demonstrate benefit. These and GLP-1 can't remember whether they're agonists or antagonists, another class of drug that have shown beneficial cardiovascular effects. And really, when you've looked at the breakdown in the trials, it's, it's predominantly with heart failure hospitalizations, which has obviously led to it being in, investigated for the heart. But even doing that, we're not really sure why it worked. The one of the I find the most compelling argument is probably this thing about myocardial energetics. So how the heart, it works better with, with fatty acid rather than with glucose like many other cells. So the fuel essentially that your cardiac myocytes are using, which could improve their efficiency. Um, there's also suggestion that obviously some of these effects like the diuresis would reduce your preload, but but that would be no different from any other diuretic, potentially uh, effects on, on the kidney and elsewhere reducing afterload. But the effects on blood pressure, these drugs aren't massive. So it's really not completely clear exactly how they work. But I, I certainly feel that suggesting that it's solely or primarily uh, diuresis is probably not true. The main trials looking at cardiovascular outcomes but really these were the trials to demonstrate them as diabetes drugs so there's uh, empereg for empagliflozin canvas for canagliflozin which we use a little bit less because it's um, not got evidence in heart failure yet specifically and then declare temi 58 which was depagliflozin but they do vary in how much established cardiovascular disease they had so emperor included you know people 99 percent of people had cardiovascular disease with a high degree of mis multivessel disease although quite a low number with heart failure so they they all had a fair mix and whereas um, the depagliflozin one had about 40 percent of people with established cvd were with 60 percent with risk factors but all of them have shown statistical benefit expressed as a hazard ratio here. So hazard ratio is about 0.86 into the composite endpoints, which tends to be things like cardiovascular death, MI and stroke. Well, heart failure wasn't necessarily looked at so specifically, but there were also interesting observations about a sort of protective effect in renal function that these patients tend to have, very similar to what has been seen with ACE inhibitors and some other drugs. So then the, the trials that we're really interested in for the purposes of today are DAPA-HF and the more recent Emperor Reduced, which look at dipagliflozin and empagliflozin. I have to say, I do like the fact that the drugs end in the same clear thing, gliflozin, that you're not going to confuse so easily with other things. I do like it when drugs do that because it makes them much easier to remember. So it's worth noting that both of these were equal or less than 40% in terms of inclusion criteria, but they did have people with class 2 to 4 heart failure with some evidence on BMP and, and impaired ejection fractions. And 
they were excluded in DAPR if their GFR was less than 30, systolic blood pressure less than 95, uh, or if they have type 1 diabetes in emperor reduced. It's all very similar. And then the primary outcome for both is a composite of cardiovascular deaths, heart failure hospitalizations, and possibly the slightly more questionable urgent heart failure visit. You know, what is an, uh, an urgent visit and does that vary according to location and health systems? But generally speaking, anybody in a trial tends to be followed up very closely. And they just randomized people to placebo or um, one of these agents follow-up was variable, but these are large. So DAPA-HF had nearly 5,000 patients and Emperor reduced 3,500 patients. And their baseline characteristics were very similar, as you expect, quite a high-risk uh, cohort. Mean ingestion fraction is a bit lower in Emperor Reduce, 27% plus minus 6, 31 in DAPA. BMP was also a bit higher, the drugs that they were already on. So either an ACE, an ARB or an Tresto, the vast majority, so you add these numbers together, you're getting you know 98%, 99% on one or the other in the Emperor Reduce and uh, similar sort of 95% in DAPA, which which is pretty good. And then 70% of them are on an MRA, 90% on a beta blocker, and then about 30% in each had an ICD, 8% in DAPA and 12% in Emperor had CRTs as well. So in terms of the medication, they were basically all on uh, evidence-based treatment. So the outcomes, as I'm sure everyone's aware, both of them showed a statistically significant reduction in the primary outcome, which is the composite of cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization, and in the DAPA case, the urgent heart failure appointments or visits. These are expressed as hazard ratios, so 0.75 reasonable confidence intervals and uh, low p-value for both of them. But when we look at absolute numbers, it's relatively modest. So the absolute risk reduction in the DAPA H was 4%, uh, 23% relative risk reduction in in 5.2% with a 22% relative risk reduction. But what is good to see this class effect where these curves diverge early and potentially continue to diverge, showing that there's consistent benefits of these drugs. And then there were concerns about side effect complications of these treatments early on, particularly there was an early sign in uh, a particularly nasty uh, genital infection referred to as Fournier's gangrene. Um, there was a signal of that early on, but actually in these latest trials and the heart failure cases, that they've really not been seen at all. And actually in, in DAPA-HF, there was one and it was in the placebo group. So it doesn't seem like that's a real thing. In terms of UTIs, so complicated or uncomplicated UTI, there doesn't seem to be any difference. But in genital mycotic infections, so basically thrush, there is a difference. And that's why they recommend and good genital hygiene for the patients and making them aware of it. Hypoglycemia really occur. DKA is a risk. You can have what they call a euglycemic DKA, where because it's promoting more excretion of glucose via the urine, their measurable blood sugar can be normal, but they can have the ketoacidosis. It's very, very rare. And it tends to really happen in people that are volume depleted. So similar to the, the good advice that I hadn't actually heard before, Sarah was talking about with the MRAs with a, a gastric upset or DMV stopping it for a few days. That's really the same advice here that if they're coming in for sort of major surgery where they're likely to become dehydrated or they are dehydrated because of DMV or sepsis or, or whatever reason, the advice is to stop them. But really in terms of serious negative outcome, we've not seen any. And building on this 
evidence, there are other trials. So DAPA-CKD came out and that, I can't remember the exact renal function cutoff, but it was lower. It was something like GFR of 20. Uh, that showed the consistent finding in terms of improved renal outcomes down to lower renal function. And I think that's useful information that we can extrapolate to our patients, suggesting that actually we can use these drugs in patients with worse renal function. It might not be included in the heart failure license yet, but actually there is data. So as long as we're you know, very clear either in our protocols of our service or individually on a case-by-case basis on the, the risk versus benefit of these and making it clear that it's an unlicensed use if they've got a lower GFR or working ideally in partnership with the renal physicians, it does suggest that there's maybe a broader range for some of these. And I certainly find it attractive, the idea that if it's renal protective and you can start it in somebody with very poor renal function, then perhaps early in a patient's journey, you might be able to have some renal protection, which will actually allow you more scope to put in other heart failure medications later on. Um, But that's slightly controversial because the the trial, as we saw, they had really, really good evidence-based heart failure medications on board already. So it's really the evidence is supporting it as an addition. But I don't think there's really any reason to think that they wouldn't benefit without those agents, as we know that there's reduced heart failure hospitalization and, and cardiovascular death in diabetics that don't have heart failure and therefore wouldn't be on um, some of those medications, although there are crossovers with hypertension, etc. This is like a guideline for a trust from a paper suggesting a way that cardiologists could use these and it was suggesting how they should go about doing it. So the saying the indication being heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with or without type 2 diabetes or type 2 diabetes with kidney disease uh, or heart failure type 2 diabetes with with risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And then it's um, put the EGFRs and the different agents, including canagliflozin, uh, saying ampagliflozin is contraindicated in the GFR to 30, but this is probably old. I'm sure Emperor reduced uh, went down to 30. So you can see how these things would change. Um, And then you would adjust your concomitant therapies in terms of trying to reduce polypharmacy of things that suggest consider measuring digoxin levels if they're on those and potentially adjusting your loop diuretic because this does have a diuretic effect. Um, I don't think it's massive, although I have heard anecdotally it seems to potentiate your loop diuretic. So for some people, there will be uh, a marked increase in, in, in diuresis. So it's certainly worth considering. And then also being aware of their antihypoglycemic agents. So you might need to reduce other agents and obviously their diabetes or general practitioner can be involved in those decisions often. But again, from my point of view, the effect on blood sugars is actually pretty minimal. So unless some somebody has a very low HbA1c or is known to have very fluctuating blood sugars, I don't think we need to be too concerned in terms of we can just make it clear that we've started this medication. And then patient counselling advising to hold it temporarily if they've got poor oral intake or before major surgery, avoiding excess alcohol and the ketogenic diet, watching for volume depletion or an orthostatic hypertension, which you could potentially worse and ensuring appropriate perineal hygiene and foot care and then suggesting that we do have some cross-disciplinary communication uh, which I think is key but uh, I think already cardiovascular 
then cardiologist use of these medications is probably overtaking a diabetes use of them. They're not necessarily at the forefront of every diabetes clinician because, again, we've got to remember their priorities are different to ours. So to summarize, uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, dapagliflozin and ampagliflozin, provide a modest but incremental reduction in CV death and heart failure hospitalization when added to RAS inhibitors, beta blockers and MRAs in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction equal or less than 40%. They're well tolerated and easily to initiate with once daily dosing and no up titration, um, which I think should not be underestimated when we're talking about getting a lot of these drugs on board. Uh, and I do worry about some other agents' doses low and lower than they were in the trials where people make great efforts to get people onto the maximum doses, which may or may not be sustainable for individual patients. Do they get necessarily the same benefits on the very, very low doses? And then the minimal effect on blood pressure and renal protective properties make them attractive to start early. For selected patients, significant side effects of rare, but euglycemic DKA we should be aware of in the volume depleted. Fournier's gangrene doesn't really look like an issue, but we should be advised to maintain good genital hygiene due to thrush, etc. And I will shut up there unless anybody has any immediate burning questions. Not so much a question, but going back to the DKA and SGLT2 risk, um, I was chatting with one of my diabetes nurse colleagues about this and um, specifically in patients with COVID. So what she told me is that in patients that are hospitalised with COVID, they're actually pausing the SGLT2s due to the increased risk of DKA from both the disease process and also from the steroids. So um yeah, just a, a, a learning point really for, for our SGLT2 patients. Fantastic. Yeah, I've not heard that. It's those kind of things, isn't it, that we really we really need to to understand some of these medications as it's set to become a cardiovascular medication rather than a diabetes medication. But we have to remember it is still a diabetes medication and we're not diabetes specialists. Fliss, are you happy to go ahead and talk a bit about the guidelines? Yep. Absolutely. So I'm Fliss Dean Goodridge and I'm a heart failure nurse from Wolverhampton Heart Failure Team working with Sarah. And I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about the ESC guidelines produced earlier on this year for heart failure focused on the core medications for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So I thought it'd be useful to begin with just to recap and revise the classes of recommendation and levels of evidence just because they reference such a lot throughout the guidance. Class one evidence, there's a general agreement agreement that it's, it's useful, it's beneficial, it's effective, so it's recommended or there's a very clear indication to use that. Class 2, which is split into 2A, 2B, there's some conflicting evidence about the usefulness or the efficacy of them, but and then that's split further into 2A, 2B, so we're looking at 2A evidence being whereby it's favoured and that should be considered, 2B where it's less well established and may be considered and then class 3 which not useful or effective and may be harmful in some cases and therefore is not recommended. So further to that there's the levels of evidence so level A which is data that's derived from good sources of multiple RCTs or meta-analyses, level B from a single trial or a non-randomised study and level C is just a general consensus of opinion of the experts or from retrospective studies and registries. So so the ESC define heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as patients whereby they have signs and or symptoms of heart failure along with left ventricular ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%. So those are the groups of patients that are most benefiting from the core treatments that we are going to discuss. So I've included this flowchart which I really like from 
from the guidelines that sort of outlines the management pathway of our patients. There's a clear class one indication for ACE inhibitors or ARNI, beta blockers, MRAs, the SGLT2s, which Charlie's mentioned, and the loop diuretics for the management of fluid retention. So those all have a class one indication. And then it goes on to talk about device therapy and if symptoms are persistent to consider therapies which have a lower class of evidence. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. The first class of drug that was shown to reduce mortality and morbidity and heart failure with reduced ejection fractions was the ACE inhibitors. These also have an improvement in patient symptoms. They can improve with breathlessness, fatigue, as well as edema. They are recommended for all patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction unless they're contraindicated or not well tolerated. And as we know, their maximum benefit is when they are optimised and titrated to the maximum tolerated dose. The next class of drug was the beta blockers, shown to improve morbidity and mortality as well as to improve symptoms. I think generally we go with bisoprolol or carvedilol. These are the two that we tend to use most commonly in our practice. There is a general consensus that these should be initiated alongside ACE inhibitors at the point of diagnosis and there's no evidence favouring whether one or the other is initiated first so historically our approach was usually to start one and optimise that and then start the other but now there generally tends to be more of a focus on getting both drugs in early and ideally um, as early as possible at the same time. The guidelines state that they should be initiated in patients which are clinically stable and uvolemic and at low dose and gradually up titrated so the phrase start low and go slow is one which we adopt in our practice. In patients that are admitted with acute heart failure, the guidelines state that the beta blockers should be cautiously initiated and you should wait until the patient is hemodynamically stable. Next was the MRAs, which obviously we had a chat from Sarah about. So spironolactone or plevinone are the recommended MRAs and they are recommended by the guidelines for all patients with HEF-REF, so LV less than 40, which was interesting when compared with the studies that the evidence that underpins it where the biggest benefit was seen in patients with LV ejection fractions below 35%. There is a reduced risk of hospitalisation and mortality as well as improvement in symptoms and that's certainly what we've seen in our practice. Arnie so Valsartan or enter recommendations for the guidelines were based on the Paradigm HF study. ACE or ARB is replaced by Entresto, Sucubitril Valsartan, in patients with HEF-REF who remain symptomatic despite optimal medical therapy. So it's still in the guidelines that we, we initiate them at a later point once they've been initiated on an ACE or an ARB if they're still symptomatic. As we've heard already, the Paradigm study demonstrated that Entresto was superior to enalapril in reducing admissions due to worsening heart failure, cardiovascular um, and all-cause mortality. And there were some additional benefits to be gleaned from Secubitril Valsartan, including an improvement in symptoms and quality of life and reduction in the incidence of diabetes requiring insulin treatment. I didn't actually know that until I, I was preparing for this presentation. So we I don't really know what the mechanism of action is there. And also a reduction in the decline of EGFR as well as a reduced rate of hyperkalemia. The next class of drug with a class one indication was the SGLT2 inhibitors, specifically dapagliflozin and empagliflozin as we've heard from Charlie. Um, so the recommendations in the ESC guidelines were based on evidence from the DAPA-HF trial and the Emperor Preserve trials. These showed the reduction in admission due to uh, worsening heart failure symptoms and cardiovascular death. There's also improved 
symptoms and quality of life. And interestingly, the benefits in this class of drugs was independent of whether the patient had diabetes or not. So some other drugs worth mentioning and their classes of evidence, the loop diuretics, a class 1C recommendation for the reduction of peripheral edema, the improvement of symptoms, reduction of central edema and, and pulmonary edema for symptomatic benefit. Digoxin, looking at ivabradine as an alternative to beta blockers in patients which can't tolerate them or whether contraindicated, such as in severe asthma. That's a, a 2B recommendation. Hydralazine nitrate in combination, something that we do use on an occasional basis as a replacement for ACE inhibitors, ARNIs, ARBs in patients where they're either not tolerated or their renal function prohibits the use. That's a 2A class B indication. ARBs as a class 1B rather than a a 1A of an ACE. And then worthy mention was sorry I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this properly is Verecugat a 2A 2B or C depending on class of evidence depending on the beta blocker co-administration so the class of the level of the evidence the class of the strength of the evidence on that depending on whether the beta blocker was in there or not that strengthened the level of recommendation so yeah a very whistle stop tour apologies if I spoke a little bit too quickly there no, that was brilliant thanks Fliss yeah good summary and I agree I really like the graphic really hammers home that there's the four key drugs or five if you think of entreso really we should be offering to the vast majority if not all patients where possible now although it does still talk about like you say so the switching and stuff it does seem if i remember rightly in some of the discussion and certainly the, the presentations have gone around it they've pushed a little bit more the concept that, uh, that that has been batted around for a while of really starting a lot of these concurrently so like you say they talk about the you know the your beta blocks and your ace at the same time but really there's a lot of calls uh, and suggestions in there that you can start all four or even five classes pretty much simultaneously and then looking at up titration later did you sort of get that from it or um, have any thoughts yeah, on that so, um like you from the discussion and the sort of presentations and things around that i got that more than from the actual black and white guidelines i think what happens in guidelines and what happens mm-hmm. in clinical practice we know that there's a bit of a variance there and certainly in my own clinical practice i'm predominantly hospital based rather than community based and that's one of our aims is when we have a new a new diagnosed HEF-REF on the wards we try that when they leave they are on as many of the classes as possible albeit at low doses that's our aim brilliant thanks that's great and so I think that leads us nicely into just a little bit of an open conversation about what we're doing in practice we've already heard through your presentation some really good stuff about Wolverhampton I thought it's particularly interesting we're talking about the sort of some of the partnerships with particularly the renal physicians when you'd be looking at using the potassium binders to help and also some of their, their insights into using MRAs for hypertension and spironolactone particularly and you were saying Fliss there that is in hospital is that your overall service Sarah do you think that you you're really now looking to get these things on board early or for a lot of patients is it still a case of you know maybe an ace and a beta blocker and then add things in as you go I think certainly it's a mixed service that we've got in one office at the moment we've got the um, acute service so the in reach service um, and we've also got the um, community service that that you know, we're fortunate to all be in the same office together so we can bounce ideas off each other. And I think it's good to initiate these medications in the controlled environment when a patient's in a hospital bed because they're having the blood pressure check. They can have daily use and ease. They, you know, that they've got the support around them. I do urge a little bit of caution with my nurses is that 
you know, don't go for everything all at once because you've got to build up trust with the patient. If they're taking a medication that makes them feel awful and you've initiated five all at one go, you're going to lose the trust with all five medications. So I think patient being at home, just be a little bit more careful. Uh, certainly with the blood bottle shortage that we've had as, as, as put, you know, big fears on us, you know, are we actually going to get use and ease and things appropriate for these patients? I think we've had experience that one of our consultants did start a patient on, I think it was Dapagliflozin, Entresto, and it might have been an MRA all at the same time. They ended up with acute renal failure. They were hospitalised and it was just the trust for that patient and trying to get these these medications back in one at a time. It's taken a long time to build up that relationship again. So, so yeah, if a patient's in a hospital bed, all nice neat having the blood pressure taken every you know at least every six hours and having bloods taken great but actually in the real world practical side no but that doesn't mean that we should delay you know try and get these medications in as soon as possible don't drag out and also even while you're in your titration stages of intresto think about getting an mra in you know doing it in in, in steps in between other steps we go on the idea of getting a mixture of everything attacking as I said the RAS system from every single point that you can attack the RAS system from is better than just concentrating on one medication definitely great that's sensible that sort of strikes me is almost a hybrid between this new or popularly banded about view of starting them all at once and the old style where it's one drug up titrate slowly one drug and in the reality of how regularly you can give people appointments that actually takes a really long time doesn't it especially when you're looking at all these things so it sounds like you've got a sort of sense approach where you know you might be starting or up titrating a couple of drugs at a time natalie had similar points on that but she's had to leave because she's um she's poorly so so you went out of the poorlies sarah for still being with us <laughs> following on from that i kind of take it the fact that we've we've moved a bit away from saying you have to start this first you have to start an ace first so you have to start a beta blocker first i think that slide speaks volumes even if the guidelines don't spell it out in black and white that all of those classes of drug are considered important or you know essential so that there is opportunities to start different ones at different times. And I'd suggest that, you know, I think there is quite a big variance in our patients. You've really well pointed out, Sarah, the elderly, frail patient that might not have that much blood pressure. Like you say, that trust is so important, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they they're not they don't care about mortality benefit. A lot of them, do you? Or, you know, this might make you live X amount longer. That's not of interest to them. What's of interest to them is how they feel on a day-to-day basis. We know that some of the side effects can actually actually impact the patient experience more. Are there any groups of patients or maybe Fliss when you're seeing them in hospital where you think, you know, actually, I, I really I want to get on top of their heart rate or or people that you want to put Entresto on first? Are there you know, any other sort of patient subtypes we think? Yeah, so obviously we get some patients that come in and they're already on a therapy for one reason or another. Thinking about one lady in particular, um, she came to us and she'd already been commenced on and, and optimised on a beta blocker, um, despite the fact she didn't have an LVST diagnosis it was started and an initiated by a GP so she got admitted already optimized on that as well as on an ACE inhibitor so it was quite easy to be able to get her switched to Entresto from her Ramapril once we had that LVSD diagnosis and then to initiate an MRA and an SGLT2 whilst she was in hospital 
majority of patients don't come in on a therapy already and so they're naive to everything and that makes it more difficult. Um, Obviously if you've got a patient that's come in and the presentation is of something like uh, fast AF you're going to want to get on top of their rate before you start considering the other therapies so you know the beta blocker might take a precedence in that situation. I have found anecdotally that patients who've got coexisting right ventricular failure alongside the left or severe TR alongside the LVSD those groups of patients benefit particularly well from initiating the the MRA alongside the loop so yeah it is very much personalized medicine it's pick your patient look at their comorbidities look at them as a person and and choose your agents wisely I definitely agree with that. It's not one size fits all. It, it is personalised med- medication. You know, when somebody's obviously in acute crashing failure, yes, you don't go straight in with the beta blocker. But actually, you know, a patient that's admitted with decompensated heart failure, I don't particularly shy away from a beta blocker if they're tachycardic at that point. You know, I'd be happy to to get a beta blocker in. We've had some patients recently, though, Fleece, some younger patients with really low blood pressures. Yeah. And that's been quite quite shocking recently, isn't it? Um, you know, some of our little old dears have, have tolerated 97-103 of Entresto and, and some of our other patients just haven't even got a, a blood pressure to, to initiate an ARB or a, an ACE, never mind getting them onto an RNA. Another consideration to bear in mind in current times is about how quickly your patient's going to be followed up. I don't know what the situation's like where you are, Charlie, but in Wolverhampton, the Arnies, GPs are not very keen to prescribe them until they've been off with a RICAD form and so something worthy of consideration is if you're discharging somebody with on an ARNI what supply are they going to leave hospital with and how quickly can you get them into clinics particularly if that involves referral into one of our neighbouring trusts where perhaps they're struggling for follow-up a little more than we are in Wolverhampton. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like I say, we've set up a system where we're quite lucky. We see all heart failures, including the HEFPEFs, in this sort of one-stop shop, two weeks, try and prevent readmission. Uh, and then hopefully all the HEFREFs then have a prompt follow-up with the, the community heart failure nurses. But like you say, things people don't turn up to clinic, things fall through. And uh, particularly, Sarah, you were raising the blood bottle shortage. I am getting a lot of letters from GPs saying what is, we due to the blood bottle shortage, we will not do secondary care blood. Is that causing a particular concern at the moment Sarah where you just think that they're you know you ask for bloods in the community and and they're just not forthcoming and that's inhibits your ability with these medicines. Yeah I I think certainly in Wolverhampton we've got quite a good system of community phlebotomy clinics actually which which were previously just walk-in clinics then Covid came and they had to be pre-booked clinics but then they completely stopped so we will have to identify patients that we were trying to get them to come into hospital um, to the outpatients clinic for, for bloods at that point or we were doing home visits on the patients that we were really concerned about. And that that's obviously not the best use of our time. We, we have got a HCA that we can ask to go out, but we had quite a few emergency, like you've got to go out and get bloods off them now because we just couldn't get them in the community. They were specifying you had to say whether it was urgent bloods or not. But then again, sometimes that didn't make any difference. It, it, was, it was a problem, but I think it is getting better now. Things have improved out in the communities. Good, that's good to hear. So we've talked a little bit about some of these patients that we might be a little bit more cautious on and some of the patients where we might prioritise things. I think there are subtypes which 
it probably depends what kind of service you're in because you know community hopefully they're more formalized diagnosis referred but common context for us in the acute would be like the fast af patient you pointed out for this so for example somebody with a tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy we see those quite a lot you know the tachycardia is, is certainly the primary problem so like you say you, their rate control is a priority and yeah it's great to try and get some of the other medicines in but definitely i'm very wary if they've got a low blood pressure as well that i'm wasting their blood pressure with an ACE inhibitor or something where getting their rate control is most likely to be the most important thing for them. And then I wonder whether patients with very low blood pressure and particularly renal failure favouring an SGLT2 inhibitor relatively early on. I don't know what you think about that. Are there any kind of patients or scenarios where you've maybe put those medicines in a bit earlier than? Yeah, definitely. We we adopt the approach that we try to make every contact with our patients count. And that doesn't always mean getting a new therapy or changing something at every single opportunity. But when the opportunity presents itself, we usually grab it by the hands. And so sometimes, you know, you might be a little wary about upping their intrastor or increasing their bisoprolol. But actually their systolic's above 90 and they're not symptomatic so a little bit of DAPA or EMPA you know isn't going to drop their blood pressure too dramatically so um, yeah grab grab the chance. Brilliant I like that the idea that you're just taking those opportunities yeah if you see them if you can do something else for them which is great that can be their overall cardiovascular risk profile as well couldn't it um, and then patients that are very hypertensive when they come in and especially younger patients I do wonder whether um, Entresto is probably quite good up front because I think once the license goes there'll be it'll be a mainstream anti-hypertensive. I say that that's one thing is when you have got a hypertensive patient that's in clinic that's on Ramapril 10 you want to get over to Entresto but then you've got that two-day washout period you, you go do think oh I can't really leave you with an anti-hypertensive for those two days so normally I'd put them on an ARB just yeah. for two days to yeah. then go on to, to the Entresto so um, so yeah that, that can be a little bit difficult to manage because I've had some patients that are really still quite hypertensive on Ramapril 10 but actually I've only tolerated a very small dose of an ARB um, it shocks me sometimes that 10 milligrams of Ramapril and the still hypertensive four milligrams of candesartan and the blood pressure's in the boots it's like what's going on here yeah yeah it sounds like that's a really great point i don't know whether there's any data out there uh, about using that um the arb to bridge but it makes perfect sense actually so yeah grand excellent well great discussion thank you both anybody want to share their take-home point I think that you know it's an exciting time to be a heart failure nurse because we've got more tools in the box that we can manage our patients with than we've ever had and it's still expanding exciting times and I yeah, agree really. with that Fliss. you know we went through a long period of almost being out in the desert and the last bit of cardiology there was nothing exciting or anything interesting about heart failure and now actually I, I do feel that our profile as heart failure nurses is, is coming more to the front, forefront definitely if I would say yeah all the action and cardiology is much more in heart failure acute coronary syndrome there's still obviously developments and important things but if anything particularly the interventional side of things is probably stepping back a little bit recognizing that maybe stents didn't solve every problem for me it's a really exciting time to be in cardiology to be caring for a heart failure patient but it's also daunting more than double the sort of arsenal in in you know 10 years or you know even the difference in five years it's enormous and you talk about some of the new drugs that are coming your decision making and your clinical judgment is ever more important 
So thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really good and really, really helpful and great to hear about your service. Goodbye and good night. Okay, bye. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Thank Thanks. you.